Uh, let's look at the book of <coughs> Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you like to say it. Nahum, um, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah kind of go together uh, fairly well. And the title and author, okay? Uh, the name, his name means to embrace. Maybe. There's also a debate about that. And so he does identify himself as a prophet, but little else is known about him. So uh, we don't know much else, and so that's all we can really do. Some identify him as the son of the Shulamite woman, raised from the dead by Elijah, linking the promise of embrace the son in 2 Kings 4.16 with the possible meaning of his name. Um, according to Bell and the Dragon, apocryphal work in the Catholic Bible, uh, he ministered to Daniel. So there's some speculation, but you know, other than that, th don't really have anything uh, solid to go on. Suggestions about the date range from 700 to 300 BC, but most suggest around 600 BC. Um, the reference to the Babylonians coming in, uh, in ferocity. Fierceness suggests a date before 605 B.C. The lack of mention of um, Nineveh may suggest a time after its destruction. Some commentators suggest that uh, the portrayal of an immoral Judah best fits a date after Josiah's reforms, which ended with his death in 609 and during the reign of Jehoiakim. So taken together, maybe 607, 605. So... If that's the case, that would be right before uh, Babylon sweeps in. Because remember, 605 is that first uh, deportation, right? Uh, there's actually a little bit before that even. So this would be right around then that we're talking about. Uh, about the same time as Jeremiah, right before Babylon. And so put uh, Habakkuk and Jeremiah kind of together. All right. The, the timeline for that time period. Babylonians, okay, sack Nineveh, 612, we just talked about that. 605, that, that battle at Carchemish that's come up several different times, right? Um, and then Nebuchadnezzar coming in and, and exiling some of the Jews in Babylon. In 597 and 586, remember, those are the other two deportations. Uh, so we're dealing with, most likely, um, it looks like um, right, right in here, right? So, again, you're already familiar now with the world powers map, so that means we're, we're getting closer now. We might soon get over here, right? So, right here, right? So, Assyrian Empire dwindling, Babylonian Empire on the rise. That's the time frame, all right? Historical setting. You can look at Second Chronicles and Jeremiah chapter 6 for a little bit of uh, historical background information to help placing the book. But the times of Habakkuk were characterized by threats from without uh, and corruption from within. The declining Assyrians were giving way to the rising Babylonians. Uh, whatever respite that Judah had briefly experienced of rest during this time of transition between the world powers would soon be brought to an end, culminating ultimately in the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 and the exile of the people. Uh, Josiah's reforms had not lasted beyond his death in 609. Uh, at that same time, Judah was uh, disintegrating within. Disintegrating within, the country was corrupt socially, morally, and religiously. So these. Uh, reforms did not take, uh, at least not in the long term, and that 
led to some problems. Babylon in the east, Jerusalem. Okay, a couple of the places mentioned. Lebanon up here. Midian down here. Taman right here. All right. Theological context of the book. And I left the slide blank. So, why, um, why does God use the wicked to punish sin? That is kind of the theological question for the book. So, we look at the, the prophets and we see how God sends in the punisher, if you will, and it's usually the wicked pagan nation, right? Why are pagans the punishers of God's people? And that's the question uh, that biggest asked here. The theme? Habakkuk's question? Okay. Then the answer. And then his response. So we're going to talk a little bit through this. We're going to look at some of these uh, passages in just a few moments. What are the other themes that might be in the book? Faith is necessary because God's sovereignty is not always apparent to human eyes. So you gotta, you got to trust Trust and obey, right? you got to have patience. you got to wait on God. The waiting is highlighted at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the book. The need to wait. Because God will ultimately right all wrongs, but we have to wait with patient faith. I think that that's the, the challenge of every believer in every age. Um, Abraham, he had to wait, right? 25 years before he gets Isaac. And in between, he messed up, right? Because he didn't want to wait anymore. Or he, he stopped believing God was going to do it, right? So that's the same thing in every age. We've been waiting 2,000 years. Jesus hasn't come back. Maybe he's not coming back, right? I mean, have you ever thought that? And then you've got to go back to, well, wh where do I get my beliefs from? Like, what do I believe and why? And you've got to reground yourself in the scriptures, God's revelation, and the real person of Jesus Christ who already did come the first time and what he said. So the same thing that we struggle with, they struggle with in a sense. Some links to the prophets. So, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Lamentations. You can see some links here. <coughs> Zephaniah, decades before the fall. Habakkuk, just before. Lamentations, just after. So, there's a little bit of a sequence going on here. <coughs> God will judge. When will you judge? God has judged. The preview, the promise, and the presence. So, you can kind of see this, this going on here, all right? The, the relationship between them. I mentioned before, so I'll mention again, one of the things that I appreciate about how to survey a book is, um, although I think it's it's too short and should be expanded, what I do like about it is um, the connection with the 12 that he talks about. And so um, I think that's beneficial. <coughs> In the New Testament, Shows up in Acts 13, Hebrews, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and Luke. So there is some uh, connection, intertextuality between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament uses these passages. And so the question then becomes, why are they using them and how are they applying them? How do you apply an Old Testament prophecy or an Old Testament uh, quotation uh, from a context way back here to a situation here? Especially if it's not like a predictive future prophecy thing, right? Or... If it was about Assyria, for instance, and you're like, okay, that's already done with, so what's it got to do with us today? So maybe it's an analogy. Maybe it's just like that happened here and it still happens here, right? 
features in the text. You can see just by looking at the chart without even reading it, it's filled with literary features. The, the hyperbole, the metaphors, the similes, the rhetorical devices that are all through it, the, the chiasms. Remember, chiasmus or chiasm or chiastic all refer to the same thing, okay? Inclusio, remember that's that sandwich structure. It begins and ends with the same thing. So you can see all through here there are these uh, rhetorical features that are in the book. Additionally, you look at the structure and you could divide it simply into two portions, the problem and the praise. Okay? What is this problem? This problem has, this problem has to do with how can you allow this? How can you have pagan nations come in and judge uh, your people? And so, and then he praises at the end. 1, 2, and 12 begin with questions. Each answer begins with an imperative. Okay? So, in your Bibles, well, what I do is when I'm studying and I, and I, I am looking at analysis or um, if I'm not reading the actual or looking at the actual um, Hebrew or Greek text, which I'm normally not, then, you know, I'm relying upon some scholar who is looking at the Hebrew or Greek text, right? And so I want to know, like, when's the next section start? How do you know that's the next section type of stuff? You know, and then I mark it in the Bible that I'm using so that... Um, you know, I can I can teach or preach portions together instead of cutting them up where they shouldn't be cut up, and I can catch the flow. And so, both uh, one, two, and twelve. Which, if you look on here, first question one, two, one, two, and twelve. Second question one, twelve. So this outline is based on these clues in the Hebrew text that it's actually a question, and then the answer begins with an imperative in one five. Is the answer? And in two, that should be probably two, three, and two, two. So Dorsey notes that the book begins with negative and ends with positive. Thus, the purpose of the book is to take the audience from confusion and despair and ends with clarification and hope. That's from the literary structure. I brought that book in a couple weeks ago and showed you, like, uh, if you get, like, one book, you know, in the Old Testament. What about this thing? But uh, I think it's, I think it's out of print now, but phenomenal. In chapter 2, whoops, let's zip back here. All right, sorry. So, I don't want to jump into chapter 2 for it yet. Okay. Yeah, we'll come back to that. All right. So, let's look at um, the map real quick, and then let's look after that at um, the beginning of the actual text. All right. So, So the Medes, the Persians, um, Nineveh, Judah. So in, in Habakkuk's situation, okay, if we look at the text, <coughs> if you got your Bibles, it will be in chapter 1, okay? Um, as, he's, as he's looking at what's going on, and he, he's praying, he's asking God um, how this could happen, um, Babylon is the superpower. I think that, um, yeah, so we just talked about uh, Nineveh with, with Nahum, so you can see where that is. And then Babylon, you, I mean, you already know this because we've looked at Babylon stuff before. So down there near the Euphrates River, in Babylon, in, in their power, 
to basically control the, the whole area. And so, verse 1 says, the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. So it's something he sees. All right? How long, Lord, must I call for help? All right? It's the problem. Okay? One, one, problem number one, why does God allow the wicked? All right? To do this. How long must I call for help and you don't listen or cry out to you about violence and you don't save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing, oppression, and violence that won't defend me? Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice won't emerges. For the wicked resist the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. <coughs> you ever look at our world and think that? I mean, our world is filled with perverted justice. You know? You ever, you ever ask, or, I mean, literally ask? I mean, I have. Like, really, Jesus? When are you coming back? This is jacked up. And we don't even live in the most jacked up place, honestly, right? I mean, you, you read about, you see on the TV, maybe, or somebody that actually reports on it, like Voice of the Martyrs, um, or Open Doors USA, what's going on somewhere else? You know, the slaughters that go on, the, the persecution of Christians that go on, you know? But like the saints in the book of Revelation, like, how long, O oh Lord, how much more blood has to be shed, right? Habakkuk, he's, he's, he's feeling this. He's, he's saying, how, how much? first four verses. And then the answer is going to come. And so, in 1, 2 to 4, say, how long will injustice prevail? The Babylonians will bring judgment on God's people. That's the answer. Well, that's not the answer I want. Look at the nations, verse 5, and observe, be utterly astounded. For something is taking place in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians. I'm raising up the Chaldeans to curse them. That bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open space to seize territories not its own. Their fears are terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from a distant land. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers that are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress. This terrifying power. Yeah, I'm offended upon you. <laughs> what? This makes no sense. How is this possible? So then, he says... Problem number two, and verse 12. How can you use the wicked to punish us, O God? Are you not from eternity, Yahweh? My holy one, you will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My wrath, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous? You have made mankind like fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no rulers. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook and catch them in their dragnet and gather them in their fishing nets. That is why they will go out of the village, and that is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing nets. For by these things their portion is rich and their food plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? I'll stand at my guard post and station myself in the lookout tower. I'll watch to see if anyone saves me. 
for what I should imply about my complaint. So he's complaining to God about what's going on. How could this possibly be? And in verse 2, the Lord answers. Write down this vision, clearly inscribed on a tablet. It is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. His ego is inflated. He's without integrity, but the righteous one will live by faith. You heard that phrase somewhere? The righteous will live by faith. Romans, Martin Luther, right? Moreover, the wine betrays an arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite with fuel, but his death is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the people to himself. And then here, in the middle of chapter 2, you have the five woes of chapter 2. Verse 620. Now, bef before I guess, let me, let me back up just a second. I'm sorry. This woes one is, is out of order, and so I am messed up now. 2, 1 to 4. Let me give you these comments first. The divine response is that righteous live by faith and humility, contrary to the pride of chapter 2, verse 4. But the proud are judged. God judges the wicked with the wicked. Rather than the alleged silence of God, there is a need for you to be silent before God. Your eyes, he says, are too pure to look on evil in 113. But then in 220, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let everyone on earth be silent in his presence. So he's saying, why are you silent? But then later it's, you be silent in God's presence. So while Habakkuk is, is asking God why he's so silent, God is, is kind of replying back and saying, you need to be quiet. You need to be silent in my presence. And so this is 2, 1 to 4 that we just read. And then following on the, the heels of that is, is 2, 5 to 20 with, with the five woes, okay, which I'm going to come back to in a second, against the oppressors. And then again, the 2, 20, that be silent before Yahweh. So let's look quickly at the woes, okay, the five woes. So the five woes. Verse 6, 9, 12, 15, and 19. Okay? The threats are listed here, followed by the criticisms down below. So if you look at this section, okay, 6 through 20, it says, Won't all of these take up a taunt against him with mockery and, and, and riddles about him? And they will say, Woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer? And load himself with goods taken in pledge. Won't your creditors suddenly arise and those who disturb you wake up? And then you will become spoiled to them. Since you have plundered many nations, all the peoples who remain will plunder you because of the human bloodshed and violence against lands and cities and all who live in them. Woe to him who unjustly gains wealth for his house. That sounds also like what Amos and some of the other prophets unjustly gain for their house, right? You have planned shame for your house by wiping out many people and sinning against your own self. For the stones will cry from the wall, the rafters from Jerusalem. Woe, verse 12 again, to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town without injustice. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? And so you got the, another woe there. Okay, so I don't want to call it out, sure. Oh, not till 2. Huh? Not till 2. Not till 2. So in verse 12, woe to him who builds uh, a city of, um, of bloodshed. 
right? And so here you've got, this is all alliterated, but the, the pillager, okay? So the plunderer, the plotter, the pillager, the perverted, the polytheist, all right? And so noticing these woes again, and again, the woe's not there accidental, right? But when, when it's written, it is put in there for a reason. It, um, it is to get your attention, not only for what the word woe means, but also for the structure of the book. 15, woe to him who gives his neighbor drink, pouring out their wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. You'll be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You also drink and expose your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will cover your glory. The, the perversion that, it, that is part of this, and that's the word right there, the, the perverter, okay, that, that is going on as part of this. You continue on to uh, verse 19, and woe to him who says to wood, wake up, or a mute stone, come alive. Okay, so we're talking about making idols, carving images that we're going to bow down to, that we're going to serve, despite the fact that we have to carry them around, we have to carve them, we have to dress them, but yeah, there are gods. So, in verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple, let everyone on earth uh, be silent in his presence. And so, um, here again, so you have all five of these woes, okay, the plunderer, plotter, pillager, perverter, and polytheist. The threats are listed, verse 7, 11, 13, 16, and 19. What's going to happen? They'll be despoiled. They'll be denounced. They'll be destroyed. They'll be disgraced. And they'll be deserted. And then lastly, the criticism, verses 8, 10, 14, 17, and then 18 and 20, um, is grounded in the spoiling of the nations, the scheming against peoples, the surety of the knowledge of God, the stripping of man and nature, and the supremacy of God. And so... Habakkuk looks at this, and you've got Babylon that's going to come in, uh, that ruthless nation, and, and Babylon is, is going to judge God's people. Uh, and then we go back and we look at the woes of what's going on. That leads to chapter 3, which is his third prayer, which that that's going to be a praise. And so, before we, we hit that, <coughs> let me, yep. Okay. It'll be online. I can do that. In verse 14, I just want to highlight this verse because this, this has become a verse that is, um, I think, a significant verse. It's really become one of these capstone verses for me as I look at scripture. In, in the middle of this whole thing, in, in 2.14, it says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea. And this really is what, what the game plan and the goal of God is from Genesis to Revelation. That the whole world would know God. That they would know his name. You know, I've mentioned this before. In Exodus, when the, the plagues come, the thing that is repeated is that they will know that I am God. This is repeated all through the historical books. And so, in the middle of these five woes, all these bad things that are happening, and 13, just before this verse, 14, says, Is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? Why do you Without God, we have no strength, we have no power, we do nothing, right? 
So what do you labor in? What do you expend your energies in? Fueling the fire and hunters exhaust themselves for nothing. And so right before he you know he picks up with a, with another well here. Um, this if this is what God is about, then then that's what I want to be about. And so that that's the connection here. And I, I just want to highlight that verse in the middle of these these woes. So after the, the problem, okay, the two questions with the two answers, um, Habakkuk then picks up with a praise at the end of the book. Chapter 3, says the prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shiganoth. That, that, that word, Shiganoth, it, it might be a, a term that has to do with music, not exactly sure, but some of the psalms have this in the superscript. There's a few other words also, like types of music, types of songs, etc. Um, he says, Lord, I've heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your own wrath, remember mercy. So he's praising for the person of God. God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light rays that flash from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. This is a praise for his power. This is where his power is hidden. Plagues go before him, and pestilence follows his steps. Plagues and pestilence, what's he referring to? Plagues of Egypt, right? They started. That's not the only place there's plagues and pestilence, but saying that your strength and all these things, whatever it is, that it doesn't matter, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans, right? He says, it is nothing. He looks, he startles the Israel mountains, they break apart, the Israel hills sink down, his pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Kishan in the distance, the tent, the tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers, or is your rage against the sea, when you ride in your horses? Your victorious chariot. Put your shoots in your bow. Your arrows are ready for the use of the oak. You split the earth from rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars of its voice and, and lifts its waves high. The sun and moon stand still in their holy, lofty residence. There's a flash of your flying arrows with the brightness of your shining spear. And you march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. Do you come out to save your people? So it's not just the Babylon, which earlier was said to be trampling across the earth. This is God trampling, right? You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked. You strip him from his foot from neck. You pierce his head with his own spear. Such warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the seas with your horses, stirring up the great waters. That's a, a praise hymn in there. I heard and I trembled. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I'm a quiet awake with those threats. I turned against the people and hated them. So remember the beginning, middle, and end, this waiting aspect? So here at the end again, he's saying, I've got to wait for the people to come against me. That's a weird thing, right? I have to wait to be attacked. 
there's a fig tree that's not budding, there's no fruit in the bottom, but they all crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the fold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will triumph in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. By Yahweh my Lord is my strength, who makes my feet like those of a deer, enables me to walk on the mountain of heights. So he ends with a, a praise for the person of God, the power of God, the purpose of God, and faith. Nextly, he links the praise and the problem. If you go back to one three and one thirteen, you'll see looking at the injustice of, of the wicked, the oppression and the violence that God is going to use. In one thirteen, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate the wrongdoing. Why do you tolerate those who are treacherous or wicked? While uh, one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous. And then we get to 3.13. You save your people. You're anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked. So there's this connection with the word of, of the wicked. And then in waiting, we've already mentioned beginning, middle, and end. But 2.1 to 5, 3 through 2.16. This idea of having... So, for, for this book, for, for this portion of the, the Minor Prophets, he struggled with this, with this question of, of how God could possibly use wicked people to punish his own, quote, righteous people. But the question he kind of, I don't think, asked is, how can you use the wicked to punish those who are more righteous? But are they really more righteous? You see, the wicked are outside of the covenant. But the ones who are being punished, God's own people, they had a covenant with God that they agreed to, but they broke it. So the question of who is actually more wicked isn't so cut and dry. And we're reminded that, that God does not have partiality. So whether you are a wicked believer, however that could be, or a wicked pagan, both wickednesses must be judged with righteous judgment, which involves punishing and discipline in this case. I should have probably had this all the way in the front, but um, so so the book as we finish this out and we get ready for our, our third book today just reminds you again of, of what we're talking about and, and where this fits in. This chart's from uh, Stevenson. And, um, and so we're, we're right here. Same time period as Jeremiah. Okay? And you can also see the overlap with, with Daniel at the end of his, not the beginning, the end. Why the end? Because after he prophesies this, what's going to happen? Well, Babylon's going to come in, right? Babylon's going to become exiling them. And Daniel takes place when? In the exile. After they've been exiled to Babylon. And then Ezekiel takes place after that even. So, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. So, that's, that's where those three uh, fit in. 
those are the three that we're, we're dealing with today. So this little area right here during the time period of who? Josiah. All right. Any questions?